Hey guys, welcome to the first ever podcast for Instacrime. I'm so excited to be here and to be able to share the story with you guys. I've been working on this project for quite a while, so I just want to welcome you guys. I did want to let you guys know this is obviously a true crime podcast, so some stories may be triggering to some people, and I wouldn't recommend that anybody under the age of 13 listens to this. Um... But anyway, I just want to go ahead and get right into the story. This is the story of Abby Hernandez, uh, a 14-year-old that was kidnapped at gunpoint. And she is just such an inspiring story of survival because she eventually returned home alive. Um, now, Abby, she was just your typical 14-year-old. She was happy. She was healthy. She was kind. She was said to light up people's lives and their moods. And when they were having a bad day, they went to talk to her because she was just such a nice person. Um, she lived with her mom, Zenia Hernandez, who was a nurse and a single mother of two daughters, which was Abby and then her sister, Sarah. And they lived a really good life in North Conway, New Hampshire, which was just a small community. Everybody knew everybody. Um, that life that she was living would come to a halt in October of 9th of 2013 when Abby decided to walk home from school instead of taking the bus like she normally did. Now, she was walking home. And she was texting her boyfriend, who chose to ride the school bus. And they were texting back and forth. And she told him, I love you. And he told her, I love you too. And then the text just suddenly stopped. Later on, her mom is sitting at home. And she sees the school bus come by. And she was surprised that she didn't see Abby get off the bus. But Abby was just such a good, trusting kid that she... She just didn't worry too much. She thought maybe she stayed late or she was with her friends and she would either turn up or let her know where she was. But as time goes by, Zenny starts to worry. So she decides that she's going to drive to the high school. And again, everybody pretty much knew everybody there. So she runs into the librarian and she asks her about Abby. And the librarian proceeds to tell her that Abby had left school when school ended. So Zenia worries a little bit, but she also knows that maybe they crossed paths. Maybe while she was going to go to the school, Abby was going home. So she goes home to see if Abby's there. And she gets there and Abby's not there. So she starts worrying because Abby's nowhere to be found. Her friends haven't seen her. So she she worries and so she, she actually reports her as missing. And this would begin the largest manhunt in state's history. And initially, the police actually thought that she was a runaway because she was a teenager and, you know, teenagers, they do crazy things. So they thought she was a runaway, but they did everything right, right off the bat, which was so impressive to me because normally when people are perceived to be runaways, they don't always do everything that they should to look for them because they don't want to waste time or resources and, you know, it's, it's to be understood. But they didn't do that for her. They actually did everything. They pulled out all the stops. They had volunteers looking for her. And again, this was the largest uh, search in the state's history, New Hampshire's history. So they definitely were looking for her. They had conferences out there. Um, 
And even though they thought that maybe she was a runaway, they were a little bit iffy about it because her mom, Senya, reassured them that she would never run away. She had left money in her room and she had been planning a 15th birthday party for herself. Her and her mother were. And she was just really excited about it. And she was three days away from it. And when she didn't turn up, people really worried about this. And they actually ended up holding a vigil for her. So three days go by since Abby disappeared. And her birthday rolls around three days later and she is still nowhere to be found. So this is when people knew that something was truly wrong because she put all this time and effort into her birthday party and she didn't even, she wasn't even around for it. So that was really just what really convinced everybody. Um, so it just, it became a really hard time for them. And as Zenia just, she never really, she never lost hope. And that day, instead of having her 15th birthday party, they ended up holding a candlelight vigil for her. And all of her friends that were going to go to her party went to the vigil instead. Now, this didn't keep rumors from spreading around her school. There was a lot of students saying that she was pregnant and ran away to have a baby. Um, and others just thought that she just ran away and was living a different life, which ended up kind of turning the community against her. A lot of people thought that maybe she had wasted a lot of the police force's time and resources and had all these different volunteers out looking for her. And she was probably just off somewhere, just being a teenager and just wasting people's time. But Zenia and Sarah, her mother and sister, they knew that Abby would never run away. And so they always held out hope that she was out there, she was alive, and she would make it home one day. So here's what really happened. Abby was actually walking home and she had taken off her brand new boots because they had heels and they were new and they hurt her feet. And she was walking and just regretting that she had chosen to walk home instead of taking the bus that day. And this strange man pulls up and kidnaps her at gunpoint. And he even threatened to slit her throat. Now the man handcuffed her and he put a jacket over her head. And she could literally hear the cracking and the popping of this man trying to break her phone. And he was telling her that he didn't want anybody to track her through her GPS. So Abby, she's a, she's a smart girl. And she's trying to peek around the jacket and look out of the window of the car. And she felt something on her thigh. And he, was, he actually tased her with a stun gun on her thigh because he didn't want her looking out the window. So she stopped looking out the window. Now, later on, she actually, you know, she's given interview since, and she said that she kept telling herself, okay, I have to work with this man. I have to, to befriend him. And so she starts telling him, you know, I don't judge you for this. If you, if you let me go, I won't tell anybody what you did. And she's just basically trying to convince him that, you know, that she won't say anything, that he can still turn back. But this was, this was to no avail. He just continued to take her where he was taking her. Um, so she starts singing Amazing Grace and he stops and he's like, 
oh, okay, so you like to sing. You, you like music. And he got out his iPod and he started blaring heavy metal for her. And I can only imagine that this just terrorized her. Um, so they, they listened to heavy metal the whole car ride there. And once the car stopped, the man actually led her into a dark room. So keep in mind, she's, you know, she has something over her face, so she, she can't see anything until she gets into the dark room. And she said that all she remembers is that there was tools in it. And then he had a big flag, a don't tread on me flag. And initially he placed tape over her eyes and then a shirt over her head. And finally he placed the motorcycle helmets on top of all that. And that was when he proceeded to rape her for the first time. And this would be the first of many, many times that he would sexually abuse her during the nine months that he held her captive at his mobile home. And he was only 30 miles away from her home in North Conway. And this gives me Elizabeth Smart vibes because they were the same age. They were both really close to home. They both ended up turning up after so many months. So that's what this really makes me think of. Um, now, she actually said that she kept hope alive. So she says that she keeps hope alive by praying. So she prays all the time. But something that really got me was that she said that with all of her prayers, she never said the word amen. She never said amen at the end of her prayers because she didn't want God to leave her. That's what she said. She didn't want God to leave her. And that is just so heartbreaking to me because this girl was 14 at the time. Um, and so she just prayed and she never said amen. And this man let her watch the news. And Abby's watching all the press conferences. She's watching the searches. She knows that people are looking for her. And she sees her mom, Zenia, on the news. And she's pleading for her to come home. And that was the first time that she cried while in captivity. And I'm sure that that was one of many, many times. So this man, he allows her to write a letter to her mom. But Abby being the smart cookie that she was, used her fake nails to scratch secret messages into the paper. And she scratched words that included the word help and the word kidnapped. But he found these and he punished her by tasing her again. And then he threw the letter in the trash. Now he eventually actually let her write a new note and it did ultimately make it to her family. Zenia, her mom, ended up reading the letter, and she did recognize Abby's handwriting. But she she said that it didn't. Some words just didn't sound like things that Abby would say. So they were thinking that maybe he was dictating it to her, but they weren't sure. They did do a DNA test on the letter and confirm that she had written it because her DNA was on it. And this gave hope to Zenia and to the police force that at least she was alive somewhere. Um. They actually didn't release the letter right away because they didn't know if she had written it in secret without her captor knowing it. So they were worried that maybe if he didn't know about it, then he would hurt her. So they didn't release it for a while. They did end up releasing it to the public later on. But as time went by, Abby ended up earning her captor's trust. 
and she just pretty much did whatever he asked her to and one day he tells her you know I'm thinking of something a little bit more humane because she'd been you know having tape over her eyes and he just I guess he started to think that she needed something else so he tells her I'm thinking of a dog collar you know like a shock collar that dogs wear and he ended up doing this he got her a dog collar and he tells her okay I want you to try to scream and and so you see how it feels and Abby said that she barely raised her voice and the collar shocked her and he tells her okay now you know how it feels and I can trust that you won't scream and then he told her to call him master. And she said she basically went along with everything that he told her to do. And it seems like this really paid off for her. Because he starts slowly letting his guard down and trusting her more. And he eventually allowed her to help him make counterfeit money in his home. And so she's slowly earning his trust. And she's staying alive. And he, she was later on praised by a psychologist who was so impressed by the fact that she was able to be so strategic in a state of terror. And I agree with this, guys, that I don't think that I could possibly reason this much in that scenario. They say that you never know how you're going to react to something until it happens. But at 15, I, I would have... I would have not been able to do what she did. So that just proves how smart and emotionally intelligent this this teen is. Now, as I said, he's trusting her more. So he starts giving her books to read so that she's entertained. And one day she's reading a book and she sees a name on the first page. So she asks him, who's Nate Kibbe? And she said that he sighed really, really loud. And he was like, how do you know my name? And this is how she learned her captor's name. So Nate Kibbe was her captor and he was actually known to be a bully since he was young. He was really intimidating towards people. His neighbors actually said that they avoided him because they just thought he was a paranoid gun nut. He worked for, uh, he worked making guns basically for machines. So he makes guns and he's a gun nut and he has this whole don't tread on me attitude and basically his neighbors just avoided him he gun for he worked for two gun makers and he just wasn't known to be a really nice guy so he wasn't one of those people that um you're just shocked when when he's arrested and you're like but he was such a nice guy you don't know like this was this didn't come to a huge surprise to a lot of people that actually had come in contact with him but little did Nate know that the last few months that he spent with Abby were about to unravel, and very, very quickly. So one night, Nate Kibbe decides that he's going to meet up with a woman that he met on the internet. Her name was Lauren. Now this woman actually later on said that she thought that Kibbe was a pretty nice guy right off the bat. They spent the night together in a hotel. They talked. He was really gentle with her. He played with her hair. And the next day, he even gave her 350s to help pay for the hotel room that she got. So she goes on her merry way. She leaves. She goes to her home. She actually stops at a local Walmart and just purchases some items. And she pays with the money that he gave her, the 350s. And the cashier 
stops her in the line and goes, hey, uh, you know, can you come to the side here? And she actually ends up in police custody where they tell her that this is actually counterfeit money. So she's she's in deep shit and she's not happy about it because she obviously had no idea that this was counterfeit money and she's in police custody and later on she ends up calling Kibby Nathan and she tells him that she basically that she told the authorities where the money came from and she's freaking out she's so mad at him and she tells him whatever you're making in your fucking basement clean it up because they're gonna come for your ass so Kibby was obviously not very happy about this and ultimately, in July of 2014, Kibby releases Abby out of fear that when the police search his home, they will find her due to the counterfeiting investigation that was not going on. The same night that Lauren calls Kibby, he gives Abby the clothes that she was kidnapped in, the clothes that she was wearing the day that he kidnapped her at gunpoint. And he tells her to put them on, and she does that. And he, she's wearing a hat. She's wearing one of his hats and glasses. She's obviously in disguise because they're they're going out in public. And keep in mind, they're only 30 miles away from where she's from. So, I mean, it's not like they were very far. She could easily be recognized. And he actually took her to a local Dairy Queen, and they had dinner together. Um, kind of like a last dinner type of vibe. And... Um, after dinner, he tells her to get back in the car, and they get back in the car and start driving. And suddenly, he st he stops close, and she realizes that he's really close to where he kidnapped her. And he just stops, and he just nonchalantly just tells her to get out of the car. And Abby, of course, is just shocked because he hadn't mentioned anything about letting her go. Um, so she, she doesn't know what to do, but of course she, she listens to him and she gets out of the car and she's just standing there in shock and he, she starts walking a little bit and then he yells at her to give him his hat back, which I'm assuming is due to DNA. He probably didn't want the police to have his hat. So she throws the hat back in the car or through the window at him and he just speeds off. And she actually said that she stood there for a while and she just laughed, which I know sounds like a really strange reaction, but she said that she just, she, she never thought that she would ever be free again. So she just sat there and just laughed at the thought of the fact that she was free after nine months and she was just standing there. And then after that, she proceeded to walk the one mile back to her mother's house. Now, she actually said that when she walked up, her mother was on the phone and she could hear her voice right when she got to the front of the house. And if you ever decide to look this case up a little further, her mother had cameras in the house and you can actually see a video of her walking up to the house in the same clothing that she went missing. Like, And it's just so interesting that she just was that poised. I mean, she really... She just walked in the house and she said that she could hear her mom on the phone. She could hear her voice. It was such a familiar voice. She walks up to her mom and she's just calling for her. And her mom, of course, recognized her voice immediately. And they embraced for a really long time. 
And later on, Abby said that she felt bad because her mom looked so different. She could tell that all these months of anxiety and worrying about her had taken a toll on her face. She just looked really different. She had aged a little bit, so she felt kind of bad. So Abby goes and talks to investigators, and she initially lied to them because Nathaniel, Nathan Kibbe, had given her a different story to tell, which of course excluded him. So it actually took her a while to get comfortable and tell them the real story, tell, her, tell them what she had actually been through. And a week later, they actually went and arrested him at his home. An investigator said that initially they had prepared for a shootout because of the type of guy that he was. You know, he owned a bunch of guns. He had this whole don't tread on me attitude. He made guns. He just wasn't friendly. So they thought for sure he wasn't going to go down without a fight. But the one thing that they noted was that he actually went surprisingly quietly. He just gave himself up and just went with them. So they were pretty happy about that. Surprised, but of course happy. They ended up doing a search of his property 10 different times because they found so many guns and masks. And he was held on a $1 million bail. He was charged and later on pled guilty to seven felony counts, including kidnapping and sexual assault. But was not even charged with the counterfeiting, which is kind of ironic when you think about it because that's really why he let her go was because of all that and that's the one charge that he didn't get and he ended up being sentenced to 45 to 90 years in prison now what really impressed me was that abby actually addressed him in court and she told him i want you to know that i appreciate my freedom because of you i will never look at the sun the same way i will never think about fresh air the same way and I want you, I want to thank you for forgive, for giving me back my freedom. And some people might call you a monster, but I've always looked at you as human. And I want you to know that even though life became a lot harder after this, I still forgive you. And that to me, that just gives me chills because it takes a lot to be that forgiving and to be that emotionally mature and I'm not sure if she forgave him for her or for him or for both. But regardless, that's just, that's on a whole nother level of maturity. And that that's so inspiring to me that this girl was so brave and that she handled the situation the way that she did. Later on, there was an FBI agent that said that if they were to write a book on how victims should handle uh, their captors, Abby Hernandez would literally be the first chapter. This 15-year-old girl would be the first chapter because she handled so well. She stayed alive. She made it home after nine months and all this because she befriended her captor and she knew how to talk to him and, and he trusted her and, and he liked her, so he kept her alive. And that's it for Abby's story of survival. I hope you guys got into it as much as I did and enjoyed it and enjoyed the first episode of Instagram. Hopefully the first of many. Thank you so much for listening to Abby's story and supporting my podcast and myself. And until next time, see you guys on the flip side.